Well, before us this morning for our sermon text, we have Psalm 19. We've been singing versions of it. We'll sing one more before we close. A psalm that celebrates the law of the Lord. And let me say as I begin, uh, there's nothing that we love to discuss and argue about in Christian circles uh, more than the law of God, it seems like. Uh, Different theories, different ideas, different ways of applying it, different ways of understanding it, Old Testament and new, uh, not just in reform circles, but in the broader Christian church. So um, I'll be coming at this from one particular perspective, and in doing so, please understand I'm not uh, denigrating or or belittling any other perspective. Um, I have to stick with something, and I'm going to stick with what I agree with, (laughs) for better or worse. Um, Hopefully it is helpful. reasonable, if not compelling, um, but I think it, it, it is ultimately good for us to focus on God's law and the glories of God's law, which is really the bottom line of what this psalm is all about. So let me read it for us before we get into the sermon itself. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Let us seek him out in prayer as we come before it this morning. Let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, again we ask your blessing as we come before your word and do ask that you would speak to us through it. Fulfill the promise that you yourself have made, that when your word goes out it does not return to you void. Instead it accomplishes everything you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you sent it. May that be true here this morning. For us, our prayer is that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, 
to open our eyes and to open our ears to see and hear that which you would have us learn from your word this morning. Make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask this in the precious, wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't often have props, but I do this morning. Plastic bag full of what? Puzzle pieces. Is it the whole puzzle? You don't know. I do. I've had this puzzle since I was about six. (laughs) It's a puzzle in a plastic bag. It's not put together. You don't know if I have the whole thing. We can look at it. And as I look at it and look at the different pieces, I see some, I see some men in spacesuits, and I see stars, and I see something white and red that looks like it might be, I don't know, it might be a building. Maybe there's a tread here that looks like a tractor. I see some stuff that looks like it might be antennas or lasers. Pretty cool. How do you normally start a puzzle? With the edges. Normally the edges are straight. There's no straight pieces in here. Interesting. But there are some curved ones. So maybe this isn't a square. Maybe it's not a rectangle. Maybe it's an oval or a circle. It's a puzzle. I can figure some things out about the puzzle. I can know some things about it. I can get to know it reasonably well if I examine it long enough. I can gain some insight into it. Maybe if I'm really, really diligent and want to spend a lot of time, I could manipulate the pieces so I could find each one and maybe take a picture or make a drawing of it, set those aside, and when I think I've got all of them, try to piece them together. That would take a lot of work. Imagine if it was a 1,000 pieces, or one of those 3,000 or 5,000 piece puzzles. Imagine how much effort that would take. But it could be done with a lot of diligence, with a lot of study, with a lot of work. We still wouldn't really know what the real puzzle looks like, though. It's just, at best, it's an educated guess. But workable. We can know a lot about it, and with a lot of work, we can know more. I also don't know, just looking at this, if when I put the pieces together, they're going to fit together right. Maybe some of the pieces are warped. Maybe some are torn or bent. But overall, they look to be in good shape. (coughs) And I would hope that when I put it together, I have a decent-looking puzzle. Now, I've got something else. Here's the puzzle. I'll just stick it here. I have something else. I have this. I found it on the internet. This is what the puzzle looks like. The whole thing is there. I know the whole thing is there because there's nothing missing. It's intact. It's not broken up. Everything's there. And I had to blow up the picture a little bit, but overall... 
All the pieces look to be in good shape. They fit together well. Nothing's warped, nothing's torn, nothing's faded. This is a complete puzzle. Whole, entire, nothing missing. I'm going to risk the wrath of those who love pianos and stick that there. <coughs> now I want us to think of those two things, the puzzle in the bag and the picture printed out, as analogies, pictures of how God reveals himself to us. We talk about two ways that God reveals himself to us, general revelation and special revelation. One is how God reveals himself to us in his created world. The other is how he reveals to himself in his word, the Bible, Scripture. Theologians have long used the idea of two books. There are two books that God has given to us through which he speaks to us and tells us about himself and what he wants for us. The book of creation, the book of his word. The puzzle in the bag is the book of creation. We can learn a lot of things about God, who he is and what he's like, how he fits together, what he wants for us, how he wants us to live. Later in the New Testament, David is not writing about it here, but later in the New Testament, Paul is going to argue that we know enough that no one is with excuse. No one has an excuse for not pursuing God. But it's not a complete picture. It's not a full picture. The picture, on the other hand, think of that as being an, an analogy for God's Word. It's complete. The whole thing is there. It's intact. Nothing's missing. And it's perfect. Nothing wrong with it. No blemishes. No rips, no tears. As long as we consider only general revelation, we have to ask ourselves, do I have everything? Do I have the complete picture? Do I know as much as I should know? Does everything fit together? But if I've got the picture, if I've got scripture, then I have a sure foundation. And most people I know who do jigsaw puzzles, how do they put it together? Well, edges first, but do you, is there any kind of guide? Picture on the box. <laughs> There's some self-loathing people who don't use the picture on the box. <laughs> but most of us look at the picture on the box. Do you want to understand how God created the world and how it's supposed to work? You pick up his book and read it. This word reveals to us how the created world is supposed to work. When a man studies God's word and uses that to interpret it and understand how the world that God created is put together, how it's supposed to work, then we have a sure foundation. How we should see God, how we should understand who he is and what he wants of us. It's incomplete when it's just pieces in a bag. 
but it's reliable and sure and perfect when it's God's written word. Now, how does this relate to Psalm 19? Well, most people see in Psalm 19, David speaking of both creation and God's written word. In fact, some liberal scholars who like to question Scripture would divide Psalm 19 in two and make it two separate psalms. They would argue that it's two separately written psalms that someone forced together because verses 1 to 6 are clearly about the created order and then at verse 7 they see a jarring change to speak about the law of the, go- uh, the, law of the Lord and his testimonies and precepts and so on and so forth. We don't see that jarring change. We look at it, at it as a natural progression of one thing to the other. From the general to the more specific. God reveals himself to us in his creation and then more specifically and clearly in his word. I think there's a third part of the psalm as well from verses 12 to 14 at the very end. The first 11 verses are really a celebration of the law of God wherever it is found. And then the last three verses, David's prayer. If we think of the soul music of the Psalms, the cry of this psalm is is a man, David, who sees the law of God and sees its beauty, sees its perfection, sees how desirable it is, or at least it ought to be, and knows his own heart, knows his own sin. He says, I I want to desire the law, but Lord, I need to be protected from my own sins. Protect me, help me, watch over me, guide me. And those are the things I want to examine this morning. The first idea that God's law is glorious and worthy of our praise, because I think that is the central theme of this psalm. The second idea which is where the, some differences of opinion may come in. I acknowledge this. But that God's law is glorious and worthy of our praise, both in creation and in Scripture. And then a third idea deriving from David's prayer, that when we think about God's law, the first application we need to make is to ourselves. That's what David does, and I think that's an example for us as well. The focus is on me, not on you. Or as a church, on us, not on them. So again, the psalm itself. Let me talk about this idea that I think, again, is the central theme of Psalm 19. God's law is glorious and worthy of our praise and worthy of our obedience. The heart of the psalm is verses 7 to 10, where David describes the beauty of God's law and how desirable it is to him. He begins by saying in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. I've been using and talking about the puzzle pieces. You've got a bag where we don't know if we have the whole entire puzzle. It's not intact, and it might have blemishes. The same word translated here as perfect, which is a fine translation, it's accurate, 
is used elsewhere in, in Scripture sometimes to describe the wholeness of something, the entirety of something, a whole year, a whole day. It's also used to describe something as being intact, not broken up, but all together. And then it's described, it's used to describe things that are pure and without blemish. So when David says the law of the Lord is perfect, he's saying it's whole. The entirety of it is, is there. It's intact. It's not separated. And it's pure, without blemish. It is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's that picture, not a jumbled piece, a bag of, of pieces that we can't make heads or tails of. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is true. And righteous. God's law is objectively, just based on these descriptions alone, these affirmations, God's law is objectively, truly worthy and praiseworthy. That would be fine, but sometimes when we encounter these kinds of things, we, we kind of remove them from us a little bit. You go into a famous museum where there's famous art hanging on the walls, and there's a barrier. You can only get so close. You have to observe it from afar. Don't get too close. You might ruin it. You might damage it with your filthy sin. God's law is not like that. It's not removed from us. God's law has an impact. It does things. It changes things. And David celebrates that here. Again, starting in verse 7, God's law revives the soul. It makes simple people wise. It makes the heart rejoice. It enlightens our eyes. The law causes a change, and it's a good change. It's a wonderful change. Who wouldn't want the simple made wise? Who wouldn't want a heart that rejoices? Who wouldn't want to be revived? God's law is not a temporary or passing thing. God's law endures forever. It's altogether righteous, says David in verse 9, his conclusion. God's law is altogether, in every aspect, in every consideration of it, righteous. Any way you look at it, any way you examine it, any way you study it, God's law is completely righteous in every way. Verse 10 is then a conclusion. If this is true, then naturally God's law is to be desired. Desired more than gold. Desired more than fine gold. Refined, purified 0.999, whatever number you want to use, fine gold. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. How crazy did Americans go in our history every time they found gold? Our state, this is part of our history. Gold fever, the gold rush, people dropping everything in the hopes of finding a few nuggets in a stream somewhere. Or a little powder in a, in, a, in a cave. Chiseling away at hard rock. 
Think of the dedication. <laughs> Think of the desire that motivates someone to do that. How crazy do you have to be to go live up in Alaska? It's cold up there. Seriously. People died from weather exposure. All for gold. David says God's law is more desirable than that. That's a test for us. Do I think of God's law that way? Am I that passionate for it? Do I seek it with that same dedication and devotion and fervor, if not fever? We should. God's law is more desirable than the finest gold. But it's more than that. David uses another comparison. It's sweeter than honey. The drippings off the honeycomb. Is there anything in in nature? I don't know the answer to this. I should have looked it up. Is there anything in nature more sweet than honey? At least that we have easy access to? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Whatever the case, God's law is sweeter than honey. Again, another comparison to think about. When we think about law, when we think about rules and statutes and testimonies and these kinds of things, we tend not to think of them very favorably. When I hear that the legislature up in Sacramento or the Congress in Washington, D.C. is thinking about a new law, my natural reaction is to go, (laughs) another one? More laws? More rules? I hated rules in the classroom. I hated rules at home. We all did. We all do. We think of law as something negative, burdensome, difficult, objectionable. Reduces my freedom of choice. But God's law is something to be desired. God, you have more laws for me? Great. Bring them on. I want them. Show them to me. Teach me them. It's not a burden at all, but something that is good for us and desirable. What a different attitude. Again, do I have that attitude about God's law? Not as often as I should. Not as deeply as I should. I would bet the same is true for you as well. God's law is not a burden at all. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven thirty: My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Those are true words. From the God-made flesh. So God's law is beautiful. It's desirous. It's glorious. And we should treat it that way. Our attitude should be the same as David here in the psalm. There's another conclusion that David comes to in verse 11, right here in the heart of the psalm. The law is good for me. The law warns me. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's law warns against evil, warns against wickedness, warns of punishment if his law is not obeyed. But God's law also promises great reward to those who obey it. 
Think in the Old Testament of Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses associated with either obeying or disobeying the law. Or think of the more profound and, and, and simple statement that we find in Scripture. We saw it in Romans 10. You may have caught it as I read that. But it's also in Deuteronomy 4.1, Deuteronomy 8.1, Deuteronomy 12.1, and Jesus says it himself in Luke 10, verse 28. About the law, do this and live. Do this and live. Keep these commandments and you will live. God's law is to be desired and it's good for us. There's reward in keeping God's law. Now, again, everything I've said so far is is probably (laughs) non-controversial in most Christian circles, including our own Reformed circles. We love to study God's law. We love to debate God's law. We love to discuss how it should be applied. The relationship between the old and new covenants. The laws associated with each. Does this law apply today, or is it a principle that we can learn from? And what principle is it, and how do we apply it? Should our government make laws based upon it? Should it not? We love to discuss this kind of stuff. But where we get uncomfortable where we get a little bit queasy, is talking about God's law in creation. That's a hot topic today. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I know I don't have all the answers. But it strikes me that in a psalm about God's law, David starts with creation. What we might call natural law. Psalm 19 celebrates the law of God revealed in his creation. Starting out with a very familiar idea. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. Here again, Romans 1, Paul is going to say no one is without excuse. And we use that in apologetics to argue for God's existence and how everyone must acknowledge it. And the only way they can deny it is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All that is true. Psalm 19 starts out the same way. The glory of God, his existence, is evident in the heavens themselves. He doesn't even begin to talk about mountains and trees and rivers and streams and oceans and birds and animals and the the glories of creation if we just look at it. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. No one can deny it. But also in verse 1, the sky proclaims his handiwork. What David's going to do here is now portray creation itself speaking a message. What handiwork does the sky proclaim and to whom? Not to the rest of creation. Creation knows it already. I don't think that's likely. Who's he proclaiming it to? I think he's proclaiming it to us. We'll get there in a little bit. The psalm continues. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's not a a speech. There are no words that are not heard. They are heard. And that message, that voice goes out to the whole earth. 
the words to the end of the world. Who hears this? Mankind hears it. The heavens proclaim day after day, night after night, that God exists and that he must be obeyed. He must be sought after. The message goes out to the ends of the earth, which is anticipatory of what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Make disciples of all the nations. Be my disciples, be my witnesses, here in Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. The same terminology. And essential to that gospel message that Jesus wants us to take is the law. The law's revelation that all have sinned, that there is no one righteous, not one. Everyone has broken God's law and done so repeatedly and with a high hand. But the law goes out accompanied by the good news of salvation, by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus. The message goes out, you're guilty, you deserve to be punished. But it comes with a declaration that Jesus took that punishment in your place, received that gift through faith. The psalm portrays this message as going out relentlessly. Verses 5 and 6. It's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, a strong man who runs his course with joy, rising from the end of the heavens, the sun, its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. It goes out, it goes out comprehensively. There's nowhere where the message is not heard. But again, these are the words of creation, not words of men. And because of this revelation, again, no one is without excuse. They can only suppress the truth revealed to them about God in rebellion and in unrighteousness. God's law is evident in creation itself. There is a God, and he must be obeyed. It's like that puzzle again in the bag. We don't know it perfectly. We don't have the completeness of it. But we can, we can manipulate those pieces enough to figure out what we need to know to obey God. It's not perfect, It's not intact, it's not complete, but it's adequate to determine what God wants us to know, that we should obey him and how we should obey him. And in fact, that we need God himself. It doesn't reveal the the solution, the gospel, that's our message. We are the ambassadors of that good news. But it's enough that every single person on the face of the earth ought to know that they need to seek God and seek his mercy because they deserve his punishment. Paul uses Romans 10 to show Israel's sin, and he quotes from this psalm, they did not hear the voice that went out, the voice that had gone out into all the world. And then he goes on and says they also didn't hear Moses. Israel is guilty both by natural revelation and by special revelation. They're completely without excuse. Indeed, a stiff-necked, rebellious 
people. But so also every human being is without excuse. This idea that God's law revealed in nature, it helps us answer another question that people raise. What about that poor person out in the middle of the wilderness in China somewhere, or Africa, or South America? What about the American Indians who didn't hear anything until after the Europeans came? How can they be guilty? Because they had God's law. They had enough of it to know what they needed to know. That they needed to seek God and submit to Him. God's law revealed in creation is sufficient to condemn them and sufficient to motivate them if they pay attention, if they study the pieces to seek God and to obey Him. It's enough to know that they shouldn't murder one another. That marriage is between one man and one woman. That they should not steal, that they should not lie and other laws of God. So sometimes we don't. For whatever reason, and again, different viewpoints are held on this, but I think Psalm 19, at the very least, calls upon us to acknowledge and celebrate God's law revealed in his very creation. And then the personal touch that ends the psalm. Again, when we talk about God's law, we love to talk about how... um, (laughs) how we need to convince others to obey it. We need the Ten Commandments in our courtroom so that other people will obey God's law. Or in, in certain cases, we even need to write laws that reflect God's law. That, that may be well and true, but I'm intrigued by the perspective of David in this psalm. Other psalms, David will say, I will teach these things to others. I will be an example. I will proclaim them. I will encourage them to praise as well. David doesn't have anybody else in mind in this psalm but himself. I think that's fascinating because he does it relatively regularly elsewhere. Again, David's attitude here is the cry of a heart that knows what God's law is and what it teaches and what it requires of him. And he cries out to God help him. He looks at himself first. Looks at himself only. Lord, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. There's those errors that we're not aware of because we don't have the full revelation of the law or we, we, we haven't learned that part yet. We haven't been taught it. Those things that we do that we we're just stupidly unaware of. Declare me innocent from those hidden faults. But even more, keep me from the presumptuous sins. <laughs> the ones I do, that as I do it, I know I'm sinning. But I do it anyway. Those are the ones that ought to break our hearts. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Do this, Lord, for me, and I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. I need your help, Lord, to do this. I cannot do it on my own. 
your words have come to me. 14 kind of echoes verses 3 and 4, the words that go out, and now David's words go out as well. Your words have come to me. Let mine return to you in a form, in a manner that is acceptable to you. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David's praying for himself, praying to be obedient, praying to be kept back from sin, to speak righteously and wisely. I want to obey your law. I need to obey your law. I don't want to sin against your law. Protect me from breaking your law. He's not worried about his neighbor here. David's the king. He can make laws as much as he wants. But he's looking at himself. And isn't that consistent with how we're taught by our Lord in Scripture? To look at these things. Worry about your own sin, the log in your own eye, before you worry about your brother's sin, the speck in his eye. A lesson for us, to be diligent about keeping God's law ourselves before we worry about imposing it upon others. There's enough revelation for them to be accountable to God. And there may be a time when civil laws need to be crafted in accordance with the words of God's written revelation. But given the state of holiness in the church today, how willfully pathetic we generally are in minding our own business when it comes to holiness and obedience, that time seems pretty far off to me. David prays for himself, knowing he needs God's help. All of us needs God's help. Declare me innocent. Keep me back from sin. I can't do it by my own effort. I need God's help. Thankfully, God is willing and able to help and has done so. He is, as David calls him, our rock and our redeemer. He has saved us, has saved us from himself. We can't be innocent by our own obedience because we're all lawbreakers. But God in Jesus counts Jesus' obedience and innocence as our own. What a glorious thing God has done for us. God's law is glorious. It's wonderful. We should be students of it more than we are. But what is also glorious? God's salvation for lawbreakers. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do not have, we confess it, we do not have the same zeal for God's law that our elder brother David had. So we ask that you would stir that up within our hearts, within our minds, that we would be students of your law. Desire it more than gold. Find it more desirous, more sweet, more appealing than even honey. That we would be warned through it. And that by grace and through faith we would be rewarded because of Christ's obedience to it on our behalf. And may we learn obedience ourselves so that we might become like Christ our Savior. But we, like David, acknowledge our sin. We are aware of it. 
We are aware of our law-breaking, so we appeal to you, our rock, our redeemer, to keep us from sin, to guard us and protect us, to set our feet on the path in which it should go. This is only possible for us because of the work of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and so it's in his name that we ask all of this. Amen.